0: This episode, if you're hearing things, could be brought to you by ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil, your one-stop shop for overpriced and expired snacks. ExxonMobil, when you need to be reminded which side of the car your gas hatches on. Choose ExxonMobil. For a gallon a day, you too can help stop the spread of clean air around the globe. ExxonMobil, try surviving in the suburbs without gas. We fucking dare you. 2020 we made it. We made it to 2020. I don't I didn't think we were going to do it, but we did. So, we're doing something a little different this week. And, you know, before I begin the episode, I just want to say real quick, don't get used to these episodes coming out at the same time every week like clockwork, you know? I'll do my best to try to produce a quality show, but I'm only one guy and I do everything myself. That includes researching, writing, recording, performing, editing, and marketing. I don't know, maybe I'll start a Patreon somewhere down the line, but it's a bit early for that right now. Point is, I'll do my best, but don't be surprised if sometimes it takes up to 10 days or two weeks to produce an episode. I'm not saying it's gonna, but, you know, I'm a one-man band, so bear with me. This week, it's been a stressful start to the new year. Just two days in, and World War III was trending on Twitter. Chet Hanks was also trending. If you don't know who Chet Hanks is, he's the son of Tom Hanks, who was recorded doing this at the Golden Globes on Sunday. Big up the whole island massive, it's that boy Chatana coming straight from that golden glove you want in. We've seen father Tom Hanks presenting and I watch too far what come. Big up, tune in. The media didn't know what was more offensive, Ricky Gervais's opening monologue or Chet Hanks' Jamaican patois. But listen, leave Chet Hanks alone. The poor guy never had a father. Consider how many movies Tom Hanks has been in over the last 40 years. Do you honestly believe he was ever at home raising his kids? Of course not. He outsourced that shit. So Chet Hanks identifies more with his Jamaican au pair than he does with his celebrity father. Tom Hanks is America's dad, not Chet's. Stop acting like Chet is a blight on Tom. If anything, Tom is a blight on Chet. Now, don't get me wrong. Tom Hanks is a great actor. He's been Mr. Rogers, Walt Disney, and Captain Sully. But there's one role he'll never land, that of an active father. Okay, so listen, that's the only rant I've got for you this week. Unless you like The Bachelor, I've recorded a separate uh, episode, a little bonus episode, so to speak, of my thoughts on week one of The Bachelor. If you're interested in that, you can go ahead and listen to it. But I didn't want to include it in this episode because I didn't want to alienate my audience, alienate the 11 people that listen to this show. So I've been a little consumed with the situation in the Middle East with Iran, and I don't have to tell you how complicated that subject is. I don't fully understand it. I know it has something to do with oil and the military-industrial complex, but if you're anything like me, you're sick to death of all the hot takes by now. I don't think personally I'll be able to add anything constructive to the conversation, at least not right now. So I'm going to read to you a little of the short book I read last week. It's called War is a Racket by Smedley Butler. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I've pared it down and tinkered around with the language a bit to hopefully make it more accessible or make it easier for me to perform at the very least. Smedley Butler was a United States Marine Corps Major General, a two-time Medal of Honor recipient, and at the time of his death, the most decorated Marine in U.S. history. He participated in military actions in the Philippines, China, and France during World War I, and in Central America and the Caribbean during the Banana Wars. He also single-handedly foiled a coup by wealthy businessmen who were plotting to overthrow FDR and install a fascist government in the 30s. Some of these businessmen allegedly include J.P. Morgan, founder of Chase Bank, and Prescott Bush, father and grandfather to both George Bushes. So, Smedley Butler published War as a Racket in 1935, where he just eviscerates the war machine. I think it's just as relevant today as it was then. If you want to read it for yourself, you can purchase it on Amazon for $5 or read it for free on the internet. Just Google War is a Racket online and click on the first result. But I'm going to read some of it for you right now. I hope I don't butcher it. So without further ado, War is a Racket by Smedley Butler, abridged. War a is a racket and it always has been it's possibly the oldest and if not it's easily the most profitable definitely the most vicious it's international in scope and the only one in which profits are counted in dollars and the losses in lives in the United States during the first world war at least 21,000 new millionaire and billionaires were made how many of these war millionaires shouldered a rifle How many of them dug a trench? How many were wounded or killed in battle? How many knew what it meant to go hungry in a rat-infested dugout ducking shells and shrapnel? War is conducted for the benefit of the very few and at the expense of the very many. As a soldier, I had a suspicion that war was a racket, but it wasn't until I retired to civil life that I fully realized it. And now that I see the international war clouds gathering as they are today, again, I must face it and speak out. There are 40 million men under arms in the world today. And our statesmen and diplomats have the audacity to say that war is not in the making. Bullshit. Are these 40 million men being trained to be dancers? Yes, they're getting ready for another war. Why shouldn't they? It pays high dividends. But what does it profit the men who are killed? What does it profit their mothers and sisters, their wives and their sweethearts? What does it profit their kids? What does it profit anyone except the very few for who war means huge profits? And what does it profit the nation? Until 1898, the United States didn't own a bit of territory outside the mainland of North America. At that time, our national debt was a little more than $1 billion. Then we became internationally minded. We forgot or chose to ignore the advice of George Washington, the father of our country, who warned us about entangling alliances. We went to war. We acquired outside territory. And at the end of the First World War, as a direct result of our meddling in international affairs, our national debt had jumped from $1 billion to over $25 billion. It would have been far cheaper and far safer for the average American who pays the bills to stay out of foreign entanglements. For a very few, this racket brings fancy profits. But the cost of operations is always transferred to the people who do not profit. Our brief participation in the First World War cost the United States somewhere around $50 billion. Figure it out. That means $400 to every American man, woman, and child. And we haven't paid the debt yet. We're still paying it. Our children will pay it, and our children's children will probably still be paying the cost of that war. The normal profits of a business in the United States are 6, 8, 10, sometimes 12%. But wartime profits, ha ha ha, that's another matter. 20, 60, 100, 300, even 1800%. The sky is the limit. Of course, it's not put that crudely in wartime. It's dressed into speeches about patriotism, freedom, and the greater good. But the profits skyrocket and are safely pocketed. Let's look at a few examples. Take the DuPonts, the powder people. They were a patriotic corporation. How'd they do in the war? Well, the average earnings of the DuPonts before the war were $6 million a year. It wasn't much, but the DuPonts managed to get along on it. Now let's look at their average yearly profit during the war years. 58 million dollars a year a 950 percent increase nearly 10 times that of normal times and the profits of normal times were pretty good speaking of normal times like the duponts bethlehem steel was also averaging 6 million a year then came the war they turned to munitions making did their profits go up or did they offer uncle sam a bargain well, as it turns out, during the war, Bethlehem Steel pocketed $49 million a year. Does war pay? Well, it paid them. But they're not the only ones. Let's take leather. For the three-year period before the war, total profits of Central Leather Company were $3.5 million. That's a little over $1 million a year. But in 1916, Central Leather returned a profit of $15 million. Small increase of 1,100%. That's all. Not as good as the International Nickel Company, and you can't have a war without nickel, who increased profits from an average of $4 million a year to $73 million a year. An increase of more than 1,700%. Not too shabby. Listen to the 65th Congress reporting on corporate earnings and government revenues. Considering the profits of 122 meat packers, 153 cotton manufacturers, 299 garment makers, 49 steel plants, and 340 coal producers during the war, profits under 25% were exceptional, meaning rare. For instance, the coal companies made between 100 and 7,900% on their capital stock during the war. And let's not forget the bankers who financed the Great War. Because if anyone had the cream of the profits, it was the bankers. But being partnerships rather than incorporated organizations, they don't have to report to stockholders. So how the bankers made their billions? I don't know. Because those secrets never become public. But here's how some of the other patriotic industrialists chiseled their way into war profits. Take the shoe people. They like war. It brings business with abnormal profits. They made huge profits on our sales to allies. Perhaps even, like the munitions manufacturers and armament makers, they sold to the enemy. Because a dollar is a dollar, whether it comes from Germany or whether it comes from France. But to be fair, they did well by Uncle Sam too. For instance, they sold Uncle Sam 35 million pairs of shoes. There were four million soldiers. That's almost nine pairs of shoes per soldier. My regiment, during the war, only had one pair to a soldier. So some of these shoes are probably still in existence. They were good shoes. I'm not saying they weren't. But when the war was over, Uncle Sam had about 25 million pairs left over. Bought and paid for. Profits recorded and pocketed. Airplane and engine manufacturers felt that they should get their just profits out of this war too. Why not? Everybody else was getting theirs. So $1 billion, count them if you live long enough, was spent by Uncle Sam in building airplane engines that never left the ground. Not one plane or motor out of the billion dollars worth ordered ever got into a battle in France. But just the same, the manufacturers made their profit. It's been estimated by economists and researchers that the war cost Uncle Sam $52 billion. Of this sum, $39 billion was expended in the actual war itself. That's $16 billion in profits, and it's not something to be sneezed at. It's quite a tidy sum of money, and it went to a very few. The Senate committee probe of the munitions industry and its wartime profits, despite its sensational disclosures, has hardly scratched the surface. But even so, it has had some effect. For some time, the State Department has been studying methods of keeping out of war. Now the War Department suddenly decides it has a wonderful plan. The administration names a committee, a committee with war and Navy departments ably represented, a committee under the chairmanship of a Wall Street speculator, but they name a committee. ...to limit profits in wartime. To what extent? That's not suggested. But, you know, possibly the profits of 600 and 1600% for those who turn blood into gold... ...would be limited to some smaller figure, like 300%. Apparently, though, the plan doesn't call for any limitation of losses. That is, the losses of those who fight the war. As far as I've been able to tell, there's nothing in the scheme to limit a soldier to the loss of one eye or one arm, or to limit his wounds to one or two or three, or to limit the loss of life itself. There's nothing in this scheme that says that not more than 12% of a regiment shall be wounded in battle, or not more than 7% in a division shall be killed. The committee, of course, cannot be bothered with such trivial matters. Who pays the bills? Who provides the profits? Well, we all pay them in taxes. We paid the bankers their profits when we bought Liberty Bonds at $100 and sold them back for less, but the soldier pays the biggest part of the bill. If you don't believe this, visit the American cemeteries on the battlefields abroad or visit any of the veterans' hospitals in the United States. I visited 18 government hospitals for veterans. In them are a total of about 50,000 destroyed men, men who were the pick of the nation 18 years ago. Boys with a normal viewpoint were taken out of the fields and the offices and factories and classrooms and put into the ranks. They were remolded. They were made over to about face to regard murder as the order of the day. They were put shoulder to shoulder and through mass psychology they were entirely changed. We used them for a few years and trained them to think nothing at all of killing or of being killed. Then we discharged them and told them to make another about face. But this time they had to do their own readjustment. We didn't need them anymore. Too many of these boys are eventually destroyed mentally because they could not make that final about face alone. That's a part of the bill. So much for the dead. They've paid their part of the war profits. So much for the wounded. They're paying their share of the war profits now. But the others paid too. They paid with heartbreaks when they tore themselves away from their families to don the uniform of Uncle Sam on which a profit had been made. They paid another part in the training camps where they were regimented and drilled while others took their jobs and their places in the lives of their communities. They paid for it in the trenches where they were shot and were shot, where they were hungry for days at a time, where they slept in the mud and the cold and the rain with the moans and the screams of the dying for a horrible lullaby. But don't forget, the soldiers paid into it too. Up to and including the Spanish-American War, we had a prize system and soldiers and sailors fought for money. Before the Civil War, they were paid bonuses, in many instances, before they went into service. Then it was discovered that we could reduce the cost of wars by taking all the prize money and keeping it, but drafting the soldier anyway. The soldiers couldn't bargain for their labor, everyone else could bargain, but the soldier couldn't. Napoleon once said, All men are enamored of decorations. They positively hunger for them. So by developing the Napoleonic system, the metal business, The government learned it could get soldiers for less money because the lads liked to be decorated. In the World War, we used propaganda to make the boys accept enlistment. They were made to feel ashamed if they didn't join the army. This propaganda was so vicious that even God was brought into it. Our clergymen joined in the clamor to kill, 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 to kill the Germans. God is on our side. It's his will that the Germans be killed. In Germany, to please the same God, pastors called upon the Germans to kill the allies. That was part of the general propaganda, built up to make people war-conscious and murder-conscious. Beautiful ideals were painted for our boys who were sent to die. This was the war to end all wars. The war to make the world safe for democracy. And as they marched away, no one mentioned to them that their going and their dying would mean huge profits. Nobody told these soldiers that they might be shot down by bullets made by their own brothers here. Nobody told them that their ships might be torpedoed by submarines built with United States patents. They were just told it was going to be a glorious adventure. So after stuffing patriotism down their throats, it was decided to make them help pay for the war too. So we gave them a large salary of $30 a month, just a little more than a riveter in a shipyard made safe at home. But wait, half of that wage was taken from him to support his dependents, so that they wouldn't become a charge on his community. Then we made him pay accident insurance, and that cost him $6 a month. Then he was virtually forced into paying for his own ammunition, clothing, and food by being made to buy liberty bonds. Most soldiers got no money at all on paydays. We made them buy Liberty Bonds at $100, and then we bought them back when they came back from the war and couldn't find work at a loss. And the soldiers bought about $2 billion worth of these bonds. The soldier pays the greater part of this bill, but his family pays too. As he suffers, they suffer. When he returned home, minus an eye or minus a leg or with his mind broken, they suffered too, as much and even sometimes more than he does, and they too. Contributed their dollars to the profits that the munitions makers and the bankers and the shipbuilders and the manufacturers made. And even now, the families of the wounded men and of the mentally broken and those who were never able to readjust themselves are still suffering and still pain. So yes, war is a racket, all right. A few profit and the many pay. You can't end it by disarmament conferences. You can't eliminate it by peace parleys at Geneva. It can't be wiped out by resolutions, but there is a way to stop it. War can be smashed effectively only by taking the profit out of war. The only way to end this racket is to enlist capital and industry and labor before the nation's manhood can be enlisted. One month before the government can draft the young men of the nation, it must draft capital, industry, and labor. Let the officers and the directors and the high-powered executives of our armament factories and our munitions makers and our shipbuilders and our airplane builders and the manufacturers of all the other things that provide profit in wartime, as well as the bankers and the speculators, be enlisted to get $30 a month, the same wage as the boys in the trenches get, Let the workers in these plants get the same wages. All the workers, all presidents, all executives, all directors, all managers, all bankers. Yes, and all generals and admirals and officers and politicians. Let everyone in the nation be restricted to the total monthly income paid to the soldier in the trenches. Why shouldn't they? They're not running the risk of being killed or having their bodies mangled or their minds shattered. They aren't sleeping in muddy trenches. They aren't hungry. Give capital and industry and labor 30 days to think it over, and you'll find that by that time, there will be no war. Maybe I'm too optimistic. Capital's not going to permit taking the profit out of war. Not until the people, those who do the suffering and still pay the price, make up their minds that those they elect will do their bidding and not that of the profiteers. And another step necessary in this fight to end the war racket is the limited vote to determine whether a war should be declared. A referendum not of all eligible voters, but only those who would be called upon to do the fighting and the dying. It wouldn't make a lot of sense to let a 76-year-old president of a munitions factory or the flat-footed head of an international banking firm or the cross-eyed manager of a uniform manufacturing plant— all of whom see visions of tremendous profits in the event of a war, be able to vote on whether the nation should go to war or not. They're not going to be called to shoulder arms or to sleep in a trench and be shot. Only the men called upon to risk their lives for their country should have the privilege of voting to determine whether the nation should go to war. They should be the ones to have the power to decide, not a Congress few of whose members are within the age limits and fewer still who are in the physical condition to bear arms. Only those who must suffer should have the right to vote. A third step in smashing the war racket is to make certain that our military forces are truly forces for defense only. The ships of our Navy should be specifically limited by law to within 200 miles of our coastline. Experts agree that 200 miles is enough for purposes of defense. Our nation cannot start an offensive war if its ships can't go further than 200 miles from the coast. For reconnaissance, planes might be permitted to go as far as 500 miles from the coast, but our army should never leave the territorial limits of our nation. Listen, I'm not a fool. I don't believe that war is a thing of the past. I know that people don't want war, but there's no use in saying we can't be pushed into another one. Looking back, Wilson was re-elected president on a platform that he'd kept us out of war and on the implied promise that he'd keep us out of war. Yet five months later, he asked Congress to declare war on Germany. In that five-month period of time, the people hadn't been asked whether they'd changed their minds. The four million young men who put on uniforms and sailed away weren't asked whether they wanted to suffer and die. So what caused our government to change its mind so suddenly? Money. If you remember, an Allied commission came over shortly before the declaration of war and called on the president. The head of the commission spoke and stripped of its diplomatic language. This is what he told the president and his advisers. Mr. President, there's no use kidding ourselves any longer. The cause of the allies is lost. We now owe you, American bankers, American munition makers, American manufacturers, American speculators, American exporters. We now owe you five or six billion dollars. And if we lose, and without the help of the United States, we will lose, we cannot pay this money back. And Germany won't, so there you go. Had secrecy been outlawed as far as war negotiations were concerned, and had the press been invited to be present at that conference, America would never have entered the world war. But this conference, like all war discussions, was shrouded in secrecy. And when our boys were sent off to war, they were told it was a war to make the world safe for democracy and a war to end all wars. Well, 18 years later, and the world has less democracy than it had then. And very little, if anything, has been accomplished to assure us that the world war was really the war to end all wars. Sure, we've had disarmament conferences and limitations of arms conferences, but they don't mean a thing. One just failed, and the results of another one have been nullified. We send professional soldiers and sailors and our politicians and diplomats to these conferences, and what happens? The professional soldiers and sailors don't want to disarm. No admiral wants to be without a ship. No general wants to be without a command. Both mean men without jobs. They're not for disarmament, and they can't be for limitations of arms. And at all these conferences, lurking in the background, but all powerful just the same, are the sinister agents of those who profit by war. The chief aim of any power at any of these conferences has not been to achieve disarmament to prevent war, but instead to get more armament for itself and less for any potential foe. There's only one way to disarm with any semblance of practicality, and that's for all nations to get together and scrap every ship, every gun, every rifle, every tank, every warplane. But if that were even possible, it would still not be enough because, according to experts, the next war won't be fought with battleships, artillery, or machine guns. It'll be fought with deadly chemicals and gases. Yes, ships will continue to be built, guns will still be manufactured, and soldiers, of course, will still have to wear uniforms because profits must be made. But victory or defeat will be determined by the skill and ingenuity of our scientists. And if we put them to work making poison gas and more and more fiendish mechanical and explosive instruments of destruction, they will have no time. For the constructive job of building greater prosperity, a greater prosperity for all peoples. And if we put them to this useful job, then we can all make a hell of a lot more money out of peace than we can out of war. So, I hope you found what Butler had to say relevant or provocative or even just interesting. I certainly did. As I said before, I read it. You can find War is a Racket by Smedley Butler on the internet for free. Just type War is a Racket online into Google and click on the first result. That'll take you to radical.org. That's radical.org, not radical.org. Anyway, thanks for listening to my podcast. Thanks for subscribing. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Chris Sandberg. That's Chris Sandberg with no vowels and only one S. And until next time. You're hearing things.